that uh, I don't know if the correct word is chorus or whatever we just sang that last song. I, I, I heard that song a few months ago. It's been very impactful in my life, as short as it is, just a constant reminder of how, how great God is and how clumsy Ryan is. No, but how great God is and um, this reminder that, that he is our king. And so often in my own life, I, I try to be the one that um, calls the shots. I try to be the one to establish the rules. I try to be the one to work things out. And at the end of the day, um, that song really reminds us that he's our king. We are the servants. He's the king. Um, and, and so I, I, I just love that short little tune. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look in, in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. This week in uh, preparing for this message, uh, I'm going to be quite honest and, and transparent. I've really wrestled with the presentation of this passage. I believe as we look at it, as we study it, um, at least God revealed a few things to me. And so this week, I, and even this morning as the group met together to pray, I was very unsettled. Um, I, I, I don't really even know if I really slept last night. And, and there's, there's times where I, I just, God places, um, a, a, I guess, a lot of conviction in my heart. And, and I want to be a faithful pastor to you. And I want to be able to present the gospel um, according to what the gospel says. And, and sometimes there's just passages you come across that just, just kind of twist and turn within you and, and, and just trying to figure out sometimes what it means or, or, or how it applies to us today or, or whatever. And, and, and so this week, there's, there was like three roads, and I was trying to figure out where God was leading me to go. And I'll be honest with you, this morning, it's, this is going to be 100% Holy Spirit, okay? Because I'm at the fork of the roads here. Um, there's no longer any more time to prepare. There's no more longer any more time to figure out which way we're going. So this morning we're just going, all right? Um, so if, before we start going, let's just pray. Lord, um, this morning I, I just ask that you um, empty me this morning, that, that you take Chad Clement completely out of the equation. Holy Spirit, I'm, I, I'm, I'm asking and I'm begging that you completely fill me. You already are f- within me and filling me, but, but I, I ask that you give me your words. I ask that, that this morning as we study your word, that, that, that Jesus remains at the center. And that everything that is done and everything that is said brings honor and glory to you. So this morning I ask that you help calm me and I pray that you open up my heart, my eyes. Lord, I pray that you be with those that are listening, that, that you soften their hearts and that you open their eyes and their ears. And Holy Spirit, I, I ask as your word is declared, that you act like a wrecking ball and tear down walls that need to be teared down and then build up 
what needs to be built. It's in your son's glorious and precious name that we pray. Amen. So this morning, um, we're looking at a, a, a miracle of Jesus. Jesus is, is going to find this lame man at what's called the Pool of Bethesda. One of the things that I said that, it, that it is, is, is struggles with me is, is in this, we, we see a few main characters. We see Jesus, the healer. We, we see the lame man, the one who will be healed. And then we see the Pharisees. And so often in Scripture when we talk about the Pharisees, one of the things that we can easily equate with the Pharisees is legalism. And, and that's a, a term that we still use today, even within churches. Um, sometimes we hear our church referred to as a legalistic church. And so what, what is legalism? What does that mean, legalism? Well, the idea is, is when, when humans, when people, create and establish these rules that basically define their righteousness through their obedience to rules and laws. And the problem with legalism is it's based on a person's actions. It erases God's grace, and it focuses on our ability to follow all the rules on a list. As if we can earn favor with God. And so in this passage, we see legalism seeped within, even the symbolism. And so let's start reading. John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, After this, so this is after Jesus, um, woman at the well. This is after Jesus heals the nobleman's um, son last week that we talked about. Okay, so after all these things have happened, uh, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast this is. It more than likely was not Passover. Um, if it was Passover, John probably would have declared it as Passover. Probably this is the, the feast of Pentecost. Um, and if it was, it, it becomes very ironic because the Feast of Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the law. Okay, so, but we're not sure. But nonetheless, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem for this feast. When we see Jesus early in his ministry, Jesus is going to the capital city, Jerusalem, as a worshiper, as one going to the temple to worship in obedience to the Jewish law. Later on, Jesus will come to the capital city, will come to Jerusalem to conquer it, to declare himself as king, but not quite yet. So Jesus comes to um, Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, so Jesus walks up, and this is where we begin to see some of the symbolism, law, okay? So it says right here, Jesus comes into Jerusalem by the sheep gate. Okay, that sheep gate, that gate was there, and that was where they would lead the sheep that would be purchased in the temple for sacrifice. So, so in this, John's already beginning to describe this, this connection to the law, to the, the connection of people having to do these things. And so Jesus enters in, okay, and he goes through this gate, the sheep gate. And then we say that he comes to a pool in Aramaic they call it Bethesda. This idea of Bethesda is interesting because it's, it, it's almost like a play on words. Because this pool, Bethesda, the meaning of it was a house of grace. Okay, a house of grace. That's the name of it. But when you enter in, it's this pool, 
And the Bible tells us it's surrounded by a multitude of ill people, of sick people, paralyzed, lame. And so it really wasn't a house of grace. It was a place where the outcasts gathered. Well, why would they gather at this pool? Jesus, and we're going to get to that later, Jesus walks into this area, comes in through the gate. He's just getting to Jerusalem, walks in. The first place he goes through the gate, he goes to this area where all the multitudes of these invalids are. And he went up. Sorry, skip my place. Verse 5 says, And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? So Jesus walks in. He finds this invalid, this, this man who had been there for, had been sick for 38 years. This is a guy that didn't just catch a stomach virus. This isn't a guy that just had a week or two of bad luck. This is 38 years. He had been an invalid for 38 years. Guys, to put this in perspective, this goes beyond the, the life expectancy during the first century Roman church, the Roman Empire. So he had lived a lifetime as an invalid. Jesus walks up to him and he asks him what we would think is a silly question. Hey man, do you want to be healed? Of course. Of course you'd want to be healed, wouldn't you think? Why, why do you suppose he asked that question? I, I don't know. M- my suspicion is he's trying to get the man's attention. I love this man's, or it's, I find this man's response very interesting. When Jesus saw him lying there, already said, I've been there a long time. Do you want to be healed? Verse, six said, or verse 7 says, The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And see, so, so we understand the reason they're all gathered around this pool. This sanitarium, if you will, became what we could consider a pagan house of worship. These invalids um, had been outcasted from the temple. They weren't allowed into the temple because of these deformities, because of these sicknesses, because of all this illness. So they gather up, and being, being they were rejected by the temple, they found a new area, a new place in this pool of Bethesda. And we hear that we have this, this combination of, of, of uh, Hebrew religion and Greek superstition. See, they believed that the, the, the Greek god of medicine would send an angel to this pool and periodically would stir this water. And whoever were the first person into the water was, after it was stirred, would be healed. Okay, and so, so these, these people are all gathered around waiting for this stirring to occur. And whenever they see it, they would jump in. And whoever the first one is, they believed would be healed. So I, I love this picture. Jesus comes in. Walks in. In his first place in Jerusalem, he goes to a place where, where the outcasts are. And then beyond that, he doesn't just pick the outcasts. He picks the outcasts of the outcasts. He goes and finds the man who's furthest away from the pool. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? And this man's response is, yeah, I do, but, but there's not a person here to help me get into the water, into the pool. 
And we see this idea, this, this philosophy here that this man had bought into, that these people had bought into. That idea that we would today even say, well, God only helps those who help themselves. Be first. Be the best. Try harder. I don't know if there are any in here who are competitive. I can be competitive at times, unless it's a board game. I don't do board games. I think that's... I, don't, I'm, I just think board games are evil. But those of us who are competitive, we, we, we have this strive that we want to be the best. We have to be the best. And this competitive nature can boil up within us. I find interesting here, Jesus goes to this man with this, who's, who's battling this, this sense of, of competition that he wants to get into the pool first. And these people, as soon as he gets ready, gets close, someone's there before him. And Jesus doesn't come and just help him become competitive. He doesn't come to help him enter the competition. Jesus removes him from the competition. This man wanted his big break. I think today many of us have sat in that seat before. We want that big break at work. We want that big break in our relationship only to find somebody else steps in right before us. The guy next to us gets promoted, and that job should have been ours. And that frustration begins to boil up. Last week we talked about human expectation versus the sovereignty of God. We see this same experience in this miracle today. This human expectation, this man belief, he needed somebody to get him up and take him into the pool. He had to be the first one there. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Jesus in verse 8 says to him, get up. Take your bed and walk away. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. I'm pretty sure this man who had been an invalid for 38 years did a little bit more than walk. See, Jesus spoke the words, and as soon as Jesus spoke the words, this man was healed immediately. Immediately. There was no stretching to make sure everything's limber and ready to go. I'm a 38-year-old man. It requires a lot more stretching at 38 than it did at 18. This man, though, gets up and he walks. No limp, nothing. Have not doing it for, for 38 years. He gets up. Jesus removes him from the competition. He, he, he allows this man to see that it's not whether he's good enough, whether he's the first. No, it's all about Jesus. It's all about God. And then John throws something in the mix here. And this story takes a very bizarre 
turn. Verse 9, it says, And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. And we see at the very end of that verse, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. Now that day was the Sabbath. We read that at first glance. We read this first part of the story, and we start to cheer. We get excited. God comes in. He finds the outcast, the outcast. He takes him. He heals him. He hadn't walked in 38 years. Now he's running doing cartwheels around the pool. Amen. Praise God. Glory to God. How exciting. And then John throws, now it was the Sabbath. And the story now begins to go out of control. Jesus, the layman, and now we enter a new group. Verse 10 says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. As you read that, how amazing, how amazing. Think of the audacity of these Jews. And when, ref- when John refers to Jews, in this sense, he's talking about religious leaders, the religious authority. And so you have this man, okay, he, he's, been, he's been healed, who hasn't walked in 38 years. Now he's walking, he's carrying his bedroll, his sleeping bag, whatever, and he's walking, and these guys, who, who no doubt knew this man, walk up to him and say, what in the world are you doing? This is the Sabbath. You are not to be carrying your bed. We have a perfect opportunity to celebrate the grace of God. But these religious leaders are hung up on a silly minor rule about carrying something on the Sabbath. This man's response to me is somewhat troubling. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. This man had just been healed. His life had completely changed. He had been laying on the outside of this pool for, for who knows how long, begging for help. And along comes Jesus who saves him. Doesn't just offer him help into the pool. He saves him. He takes away all of his infirmity. He walks without a limp. This man has been changed. Life-altering change. The Jews come up to him. And this man whose life had just been changed, his response was, don't get mad with me. It was this other guy, the guy who, who healed me. He said to go ahead and do this. Who am I to tell this guy no? It's his fault. Does that not cause any of us to go, holy cow, like, what's going on here? Like, if you're like me, as you read this, you're like, certainly, if I'm that man, I'm proudly declaring. I am, I'm beating my chest saying, there's this guy who's healing. But this man's blaming Jesus for healing him now. The Jews then um, go to him. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. This man didn't know who Jesus was. 
unfamiliar with him. Jesus performs this miracle and slips away as the crowd, the multitudes begin to, to show up. So these guys say, well, what's going on? Well, who is this man? Who, who, who healed you? Who would tell you to carry your bedroll on the day of Sabbath? I don't know. This man, we have to give him some credit, though, because we see next that um, Jesus goes and um, finds him. Verse 14 says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So this, this verse insinuates, strongly suggests, that Jesus went looking for the man. He didn't just happen to walk into them. He didn't just happen to find him. He was out there searching for the man, and he finds the man in the temple. Why was he in the temple? I don't know. It could have been he was excited. He, he, it, it's the time of the feast. Maybe this is his opportunity for the first time in a long time to partake in the feast with his other Jewish brothers. It could be because of the Pharisees and all these different laws that they had done, according to um, back in Exodus, if a, a person was found to have leprosy, before they were released, when they were clean, when they were considered clean, they had to go to the priest first to, to be signed off on. And so they, they quite possibly could have added other ailments underneath this. So he could have possibly been going to the, the temple to get signed off on being healed. I don't know, but he was there. And Jesus finds him there. Jesus says to the man, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. First glance, we read that verse, and it almost feels like Jesus is insinuating that his sin caused him to be where he was at. It was a, a, a judgment based on his sin, and now he's saying, listen, don't do it again, or else you're going to be back in the same spot you're at. Jesus kind of clears that up in, in John chapter 9, verse 3. When he says it's, it's not the sin of the father, it's not the sin of the mother, it's not the person's sin that causes these things to occur. John later in his other gospel, in, 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 the, in 1 John, another book that he writes, deals with, in great depth about, about the idea of sin and objection of sin. And there John talks about the, the, the sin that can cause death or spiritual or physical death, and then a sin that does not lead to death. In this sense, what Jesus is saying, he's, like, he's not saying that, that you are this way because of your sin or your mother's sin. What, what Jesus is referring to is change. You're a new person. Accept me. Follow me. Live a new way, a spiritual birth. Don't fall back into the things you did before. I also find it amazing in this idea. There are times when um, I can have a conversation with somebody, talk with people, and they'll make a statement similar to, I just don't feel God anymore. I, I just don't see God. This isn't meant to be a statement of judgment just of perception. Not in every case, but in many cases, I can look at that person and realize that they've not been involved in Bible study in weeks, maybe months. 
It's been weeks since they've been in church. See, the reality is um, God meets you here. Maybe you've experienced this before. I know I've experienced it in my life where, where you might be having an awful week, an awful day. You show up to church and the messages hit you. The words that are said just hit you. Guys, I am not the most eloquent speaker. It's not my words that are going to bring deep conviction. That's not the role that I play. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. The Holy Spirit takes this. The Holy Spirit uses His Word, God's Word, and He begins to plant it in your heart and change you. The problem becomes when you don't feel God, it's because you're separating yourself from Him. You're going away from Him. You're walking away from Him. This man, to his credit, goes to the temple and Jesus finds him there. Verse 16 says, and this was why the Jews, well, I'm sorry, let me go back. Verse 15 says, and the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So Jesus meets this man. Says, hey man, you're well, you're healed. Great. Go, sin no more. This man picks up and he runs. This, uh, that phrase there, says, went away. The better translation would be went after. It's the same term associated in the rest of the Gospels when we talk about discipleships. When we talk about people who would become disciples, you see, the idea, if you remember about disciples, is um, when we look at Jesus and we look at John, those who would follow him, that they would leave. Jesus called them, and those people would went after Jesus, they left to follow Jesus, to learn about him, to be with him, to grow closer to him. That's the same idea as this man. He goes after the Jews. And he wants to clarify, I know who it is now. It's this guy, Jesus. This is what troubles me in this passage. Because when I read about this man, the best I can identify is this is a cowardly faith. God just changed him. God rewarded him. God blessed him. And as soon as a little bit of rough waters occur, notice how quickly he was to turn his back on God. Notice how quickly he was to deflect the blame towards Jesus rather than rejoicing in the reward. He passes blame on the healer. It's easy for me to sit in judgment of this man. There have been many times in my own life I've done the same thing. There have been many times when um, I'm walking and I feel the Holy Spirit prodding me to share the gospel with somebody, and out of fear, I don't. I don't know if you're like me, but there are certain things in life that haunt you. I remember growing up, we had a neighbor. They had two boys. 
they were younger than me, and, 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 and the, their oldest son worshipped the ground I walked on, which is easy to understand. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of do the same thing. But this is a kid that, that, that whenever I was outside playing basketball, he wanted to come play basketball. Whenever I was doing this, he wanted to come. And I just saw him as an annoying little kid. I didn't want him to be around. He was cramping my style. And that would carry on through life, through my elementary age. Eventually they move away, and we would do things, and our, our church did a thing kind of like vacation Bible school. Every year my mom would be like, you need to get him to come, and I didn't want him to be there. My mom knew better, so she'd take him anyways. I remember, um, I guess it was, I had just moved to Tallahassee about 12 years ago. I remember my mom called me. I think it was my mom or my dad. They told me that he died in a snowmobile accident. You know, the first thing that went through my mind is I had this whole time, I had all opportunity to tell this kid about Jesus. But I didn't want to. I was maybe either too afraid had other things to do. That's a thing that still haunts me. That's 12 years removed. Guys, there's a good possibility that kid's in hell right now because Chad Clement didn't tell him about Jesus. Uh, as a pastor, as I told you guys, um, one of the things that convicts me I know one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and give an account for how I lead this church. I've been given a beautiful opportunity to talk about the Bible. But that can come with a heavy burden. I was reminded this week in 2 Timothy. Let me read this for you. 2 Timothy 4. This is Paul writing, and he's writing to Timothy. Paul had been mentoring Timothy. This is towards the end of the book now. This is kind of Paul saying his farewell to a guy that was like his little brother. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God. So he's telling Timothy, wake up, this is big. He's calling the God card out here. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead. See, the reality is, not just me, but all of us, believer or unbeliever, one day when we breathe our last breath, one day we all will stand before Jesus and be judged. Every single person. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, I charge you before Jesus and before God that one day he will judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itchy ears, 
they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Guys, that passage is underlined in my Bible. I read that and I pray that as a reminder to myself as your pastor. It is my duty to preach the word. This Bible warns us there comes a time when people will not want to listen to the truth. Because nobody likes having their toes stepped on, do they? Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're not good enough. We all want to do what we want to do. This man comes and he becomes this, this cowardly faith. And I say this to you because if we look in Revelation 21, verse 8, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, verse, or chapter 21, the second to last chapter, It says this, verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give you the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have, his heritage, have this heritage, and, it will, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. My prayer this week, as I read this passage and I looked at this man who had been given such a tremendous opportunity, but proved to be a coward, I was reminded in my own life of my frequent cowardly ways. And I've been begging God Help me not to be a coward. Help me to be a Christian who conquers, like it says in Revelations 21. Listen, we all make mistakes. We all, from time to time, will be cowardly. I think if we all step back and think in our own lives. We can think of those times when God prompted you to do something and you were too afraid to do it. It happens. The question, I believe, becomes when it continually happens. 
when things continually happen, when we're too afraid to mention Jesus, then how sincere is that relationship? How true is that relationship? It's a poor example. But I love my wife with all my heart. I, you all know that I'm blessed beyond my, I was the rebound guy and I moved in quick. Okay, we all know that. Okay, you can tell she's beautiful, I'm not. Okay, we know that. I love my wife. But if I was too ashamed to be outside with my wife, if I was too ashamed to be around her, if I took off my wedding ring because I was ashamed of that, how much do I really love her? I mean, if, if I have to hide my feelings from my wife, you all would wonder, there's something going on there. It's not legit. But yet so often in my Christian walk, I do the same stinking thing. I'm too scared of what somebody might say. And in that verse, 2 Peter 4 goes through my head and says, listen, we are all going to stand before Jesus Christ and we will all be judged. I don't want to be like this lame man who was healed. I've been blessed beyond measure. I have four amazing kids, a beautiful wife, I couldn't ask for a better church. I couldn't ask for better people to be sitting here this morning. I have been blessed beyond measure. I don't want to be a coward and tell people where the blessing came from. I want to have the strength to stand up and say, it was Jesus. I deserve nothing. I deserve to be homeless. I deserve to be destitute. Everything that I have, every talent that I possess has been a gift from God. Now we have our third group that shows up, in the, as we said, the Pharisees. And they get mad at Jesus. Verse 16 says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because it he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What's amazing about this is Jesus was the one who established the Sabbath. You go back in Exodus and, and we see that according to the law of this Sabbath, this was considered to be a day of rest. Beginning of the message, I talk about legalism. Legalism is when you take these rules man-made rules people think up to create one's righteousness through the the ability to follow a, a list of do's and don'ts and so jesus in the law god in the, in the law says obey the sabbath it'd be a day of rest a simple one verse and these pharisees end up taking one verse and they they they, they record all these 
sayings, all these rules apply to this one verse. And when it was all tabled together, when it's put together, it equaled 23 chapters in a book on keeping the Sabbath. And they all would come back from in Genesis chapter 20 where the commandment is keep the Sabbath. That idea references back to Genesis chapter 2 when God created the earth. He did it in six days and the seventh day he rested. He set a precedent to commemorate that day in which God created, that time when God created the world, to enjoy it. To rest. See, the day of Sabbath, it's, it's good for us to take that day of rest. It helps rejuvenate our bodies and our brains. But it wasn't created just to make us get more sleep and give our brains a few minutes to settle down. See, God created this time to allow people to stop. He gave them permission to stop working so they could focus on God's great creation and his amazing provisions. God did everything in those six days to fully give us the opportunity to do what we were created to do. And it's simply this, to worship and enjoy him forever. Cut and dry, that is it. We can boil our lives down to that. That is the one thing that God created us to do to worship and enjoy Him forever. That's it. These Pharisees come up with all these rules, and now they're mad at Jesus. Jesus makes a very interesting statement at the end of verse 17. He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus makes this declaration My father, I'm his son. I am equal with God, is what Jesus declares to those men. He was working on the Sabbath. See, Jesus rested from creation, but God never stopped working. See, if God had stopped and did nothing, all of creation would have crumbled on day seven. God continued to provide and protect on the seventh day. And Jesus says, I'm doing the same. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we see that God himself breaks the Sabbath. When he had to go on a rescue mission to track down Adam, who had just sinned. Jesus says, I'm doing the same thing. I'm a reflection of my Father. I'm a reflection of my Father. I'm helping. I'm here saving. And this is what puts the Pharisees over the top. Because verse 18 says, And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, the day that Jesus, God, had created and established, these Pharisees had now usurped, and they had taken it over. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he is even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. We see legalism all throughout this passage of Scripture. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God. See, we're saved not by anything we do, 100% completely by God's grace. That's it. There is nothing that Chad Clement can do to impress God. See, legalism will create one of two things. It will either create pride or depression. Pride in that, look how good I am. I can keep these rules. I am amazing. I'm doing great. Or depression, I can't keep the rules. I'm not good enough. And Jesus comes in this healing, in this miracle, and blows it all up. He takes us out of that competition. It reminds us it's nothing that we do. It's all through him. Where I wrestled this week is not so much the idea of legalism, though. I was Yesterday we were in Thomasville. Went to watch a nephew play baseball, and then the ladies had to shop afterwards. So we had lunch, and we were, I'm like most typical guys, I find a bench and sit on it until we go to the next store, find another bench and sit on it. My father-in-law and I were talking, and this, this came up, and what troubles me so much, I think, today is, yes, there are churches, there are legalistic churches, no doubt. Legalism was around in Jesus' day, it's around today. There are churches that, that robe itself with these rules, and, and, and they, they guise it under this robe of godliness. But at the end of the day, it was just something to give them authority over other people. That's around. It's a, it, 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 is, it, is, it is within our society. But, but my fear is this pendulum of legalism has swung way to another side. To the point where um, when somebody reads God's Word, they view it as a bunch of parables, maybes, what-ifs. They view it as, as, as things that you might want to consider. Instead of reading God's Word and doing literally what it says to do. We, we live in a day and age where, where, where so often we, we hear the words tolerant. We need to be politically co- correct. We, we, we need to tolerate everything. And it's seeped in to not just political matters, but it's seeped into our churches to where we can no longer say something's right or something's wrong. And we have people that will say, well, well Jesus didn't really, he wasn't really born of a virgin. And that really, that really didn't happen. Or, or Jesus really wasn't God's only son. Or Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Like, like right before they put him up there, like somehow magically a, another person was there. Jesus was no longer there. It was another empty body that was there. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, doesn't really live within me. It's just 
conviction every once in a while. He doesn't really live within me. And I'm here to tell you, legalism is bad, yes. But I want to call us to be a church that reads God's word. That we meditate on it. That we let it saturate our hearts, our minds. Guys, don't ever forget that this, this book is infallible. There is not an error found within it. It is written by God. It is his love story to us. It starts with a fallen man and ends with a God who comes and saves us. We need to read this book. We need to be in it every day. We need to allow this book to change our lives and not be cowards about it, not hide reading it. Let's live it. Let's breathe it. Let's memorize it. And let's do what it says. And let's not turn it into a book of fables, tall tales, cool stories to read to our kids at night. But accept it for truth. Absolute truth. Let's pray.